talking about in some of these songs. And so hopefully give us some fresh eyes of some of the, the wonder of some of the songs that, that we sing and what it really means and to make it really worshipful for us. So the song we're talking about tonight, Silent Night, is the, according to the sources I can find, it's the most recorded song in human history. It has been recorded by more artists in more language than any other song ever written. In fact, Silent Night has been translated and sung in more than 140 languages that can be found right now. So when we were just singing Silent Night, realize that there are believers in China singing in Mandarin Chinese Silent Night in their language. There's believers in India singing in Hindi Silent Night. You know, so all over the world, and at least we can find more than 140 languages where people, where brothers and sisters in Christ are singing Silent Night. It's an old carol and it's still very popular. So like I did last week, I'll give you some context on why it was written, who wrote it, and then we'll talk about the meaning. I haven't had some discussion mixed in tonight as well as we do it, so we have a chance to talk about the song. But background, when Silent Night was written, the Napoleonic Wars in Europe had just come to an end. There was a time of suffering, a time of conflict. Troops were being withdrawn. Borders were being re- redrawn as far as the countries there. There was economic depression. It was not exactly a happy, prosperous time in the life of the world, particularly in Europe where this was written. So we go back to the year 1816, and there was a 24-year-old guy by the name of Joseph Moore, M-O-H-R. Joseph Moore loved music, and he loved poems. And so Joseph one day was walking from his grandfather's house to the church. And as he was walking, he had an idea for a poem, and he wrote a six-stanza poem that translated was Silent Night. It was a Christmas poem about the message of what Christmas was all about. So he wrote it while walking between his granddad's house and the church. So there were six stanzas. So kind of like last week I told you there would come a manual where one got added. Well, I can find four stanzas now. I don't know where the other two disappeared to. So last week we added one. Today we're subtracting two, and we're not sure where exactly they went. So that was in 1816. He wrote it, but just kind of shelved it, put it in his drawer. Not much came of it until 1817. He was 25 years old, and he was made the assistant priest of St. Nicholas Church. How fitting for Christmas, right? St. Nicholas Church in, I may be butchering the town's name, Oberndorf, Austria. Oberndorf, Austria. And our own John Schneider has been there and actually sent me pictures of St. Nicholas Church there. And here, Joseph Moore was made the, in char- was put in charge of the music at this, at this church. So he had your job in the church. He was their worship leader. He was the one who wrote music and conducted all that for them. He also had a heart for the poor, and so he spent a lot of time ministering to the poor in the community. So that was in 1817 he transitions to this. So it's now 1818. So, we're two, years, so two years ago he wrote this poem while walking to church. It's 1818, and he's getting ready for the Christmas Eve Mass, their midnight Mass that they would do at St. Nicholas Church in Orbendorf, Austria. And this is what we know is established history, that that night he was walking to the church, and, or he was at the church, and he was getting ready for the service. Now, what happens next gets fuzzy, because there's different stories in circulation. And so it is hard to know what is actually history and what is a little bit of folklore that's been embellished on that. But we know that it was Christmas Eve. We know it's 1818. We know it's Joseph Moore. And we know he was working at his church in this town in Austria. So that is established. As the generally accepted story goes, he was getting ready for their midnight mass. And he was getting ready. He discovered just hours before the service that the organ would not work. You know, back then all the music was done with, with piper. They didn't have the drums and all the instrumental things that we have now. It's mostly done in the churches with the organ. He discovered that the organ would not work. And he spent hours, supposedly, so the story goes, working with the organ, supposedly even crawling behind it, trying to fix it. But it remained silent. So the silent night, at least in part, was, the story goes, the organ not working. 
Well, why the organ break? Well, depending on who you read, there's about three or four different stories of what happened that night. Some people say mice in the church got into it and messed it up. Some people say there was just the weather was unusual and there was too much moisture and the moisture messed up the organs. That's one of the stories in there. There's even a, a pretty fanciful story because one thing I didn't mention of Joseph Moore, he was actually born to an unmarried woman, which at the time was like, you know, really just, I mean, it was considered awful in the society there. And so some people even speculate that, a, that one of the priests who didn't like that background, they didn't think he should be a priest because of this background of his family. But they, one theory says the priest sabotaged the organ and broke the organ to spite him. So, I mean, there's all these different stories that are out there of what it was. And some people don't even think the organ was broken in the first place. So, honestly, we don't know why the organ was silent the night the silent night was first played. As the story goes, he paused and asked God for inspiration because, he, again, he was a guy who loved music. His, his reaction was probably about what Ira felt when the strings break on the piano. Like, just like, oh, what are we going to do? I love music. The congregation loves music. What are we going to do with this? So supposedly he prayed and asked for inspiration. And as soon as he prayed, he remembered he wrote a poem two years ago while walking to church. And so the story goes, he went to his desk drawer, found it, pulled it out, and thought, we could sing this. We could sing this. And so he was not a guy who could compose music. But the guy who played the organ in the church was a guy by the name of Franz Gruber, G-R-U-B-E-R. And this is where we know it returns to history. So this is the part we know from Gruber's own account actually happened. So Moore goes to Gruber. Gruber was a school teacher. He was 31 years old. He played the organ for the small church, but he was a school teacher by trade. And so Moore goes and takes him this poem and says, can you write this for tonight? Can you put this to, or take this, this, this poem and put it to music and sing that's singable to the church and that the choir could learn today and sing it tonight? And he says, sure, I'll do that. And so sitting there in his schoolroom in a schoolhouse called Ensdorf there in Austria, he composed the tune that we still sing today. So the melody of Silent Night that we sung was done by a school teacher and an organist. So supposedly he take, um, Gruber takes the, the psalm back. Meets with more, they loves it, they put it together, they take it to the choir, they, were, they rehearse it, and they're even able to get the choir to sing the full four-part harmony for the last two lines of it. So sometimes if you hear choirs sing silent at night, everyone's kind of in, I don't know the right musical terminology, but all singing in unison on the first part, and then they go into the beautiful harmony and mix for those last two lines, sleep and heavenly peace. So they, they go into that because that's how he wrote it and taught the choir how to sing it, and they played it with guitar that night, which was incredibly unconventional, which again is why a lot of the stories say the organ had to be broken, because what priest in his right mind for Christmas Eve mass would turn off the organ and pull out the guitar. But that is what happened. And so that congregation that they sung to in Austria that night was a congregation with mostly boat builders, shipping laborers, and their families. So it was just a lot of common people. And the common people in that church fell in love with the song that had been composed by the, the priest and then taken to the school teacher to put to music. And so it had its world premiere, if you will, in this little town that's near Salzburg, Austria, on Christmas Eve in 1818. So the question is, how did it make it to us today from a little town in Austria to Montgomery, Alabama? Why are we still singing and it's all over the world? Well, the organ apparently, so the story goes, the organ, an organ repair guy came to fix it. Just like I've seen after the strings break here, we have a professional piano repair guy show up and fix the strings. So they brought in a guy from out of town who, to repair the organ. His name was Karl Marocker. Well, while he was there, you know, sometimes when workers are at your house, you know, you chat with them while they're doing things. So he asked what had happened to Oregon and how did you do mass, you know, the Christmas Eve mass so there was no Oregon. They told the story. He's like, well, that's a cool story. He said, can I see the song? 
And so they shared the song with him, and he thought it was fascinating. And so you know how people talk. So as the story goes, when you go to the next town to fix the next organ, he's like, you're not going to believe what happened over in this town. The organ broke, and he tells the story. Well, I want to hear the song. So he made a copy of it, and they, they heard it. Well, he's like, it's a place for our church. And so he would travel throughout Austria in these towns fixing things. So the story goes that people would hear it, and they would fall in love with the song. Well, let's jump ahead now to 1832. There was a family called the Stasser family. And the parents would take would set up like their business booth at fairs. And to make more money, they had kids, and they'd have their kids stand in front of their booth and sing. So when you watch The Sound of Music, the Von Trapp family singers and all the kids, get that in your mind. This is Austria. This is a big family singing at the booth, but to get business in. And in one of their times, they came across Silent Night as it got spread, and they sang it. And people at the, the fairs where they were working were like, this is awesome. These kids are singing Silent Night. Like, they fell in love with it. So the popularity began to grow, and they began to sing it in more places, even to where eventually King William IV of Prussia heard the song. He loved it so much, he had it sung in his national cathedral. And when the king has a song sung in a cathedral, everyone takes notice. And across Europe, it just began to spread like wildfire, so to speak, because the king had it sung, and other stories went with it. Within six years, it was published in its first hymnal book in Germany in 1838, and it was in 1839 that Silent Night jumped across the ocean to the U.S. here. Another Austrian family group, a different one, not the Stassers, but again, picture, picture the Von Trapp kids from The Sound of Music. A family like that shows up in the U.S. They're in New York. They're up at Trinity Church in New York, and they sing the song in English. And people are just like, whoa, this is great. And so it became popular and spread quickly. And by the time of the U.S. Civil War, it was America's already most popular Christmas carol. By the time of the Civil War. 1863, it got printed in English for the first time. Not in a hymn book. Not in a Christmas carol book. But in a book of Sunday school songs to teach kids. And so Silent Night's debut into English print was in a Sunday school book. By the late 1800s, it was already in 20 languages. It was being sung around the world. And like I mentioned, it's now in more than 140 languages. But interestingly, Joseph Moore, the guy who wrote the song, wrote other poems. stuff. It's the only work of his that ever got translated into English. So he was one of the early one-hit wonders. <laughs> Only thing we have from him. And the sad part of this is he really didn't gain credit for the song until much later. And so when he died in 1848, he died penniless, poor, with no recognition as being the guy behind this song. So that's the background of Silent Night. A lot of history and a lot of stories. That we're not sure what is history and what's not because there's lots of traditions out there. But the carol itself is an amazing song. I mean, obviously had an understanding of Scripture, understanding of who Jesus was. And as we talk through the four stanzas of it, just I want you to be looking for this kind of dual thing you'll see in here, that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Because you'll see this. We talk about this. We'll get into this more when we get to some theology stuff this next year on Wednesday nights. But Jesus is fully God. And he's fully man. It's not like he's 50% God and 50% man. It's not that he quit being God when he was born. You know, he's, he's, always, he's fully God and he's fully man. He's 100% both. He's the God-man. And we're going to talk more about that. And you're going to see that as we work through more of this text. So just kind of be looking for that as we go through tonight. So what I want us to do tonight is instead of saving all of our discussion for the end, we're going to do discussion as we go, Okay. So we're going to mix it up. I'm going to tell you a little bit, and we're going to talk about a few things. We're going to talk a little more and split. So if you want to go ahead right now where you're at and get into small groups, I'm going to give you two questions once you get paired up, or paired up, once you get into small groups, I'm going to give you two questions to talk about, and then we'll talk about more of the same. So go ahead and get yourself into groups of about maybe five or six or whatever's good. You, you know what best facilitates discussion for you all. And 
we're going to and we're going to discuss and then go back to the to looking at it and back and forth. So take just a minute and get into groups, and then I'll give you your first two questions. Quiet and not quiet that night. Who had a good answer in your group? So in what ways was the birth of Christ not quiet? You want to volunteer what your group said? It was a birth, yeah. I mean, I, Jesus is fully God and fully man. He got delivered with a normal birthing process. If you have kids, that's not exactly a quiet process. Yeah, so it was not quite that way. How, how else was the silent night not quiet? Was that? There were angels. They were singing. Yeah, absolutely. How else was it not quiet, not silent night? The town was loud. Yeah, it was full of people. Yeah, there were people everywhere. Absolutely. Any other ways you thought of how it was not a silent night? Animals making noise. Yeah. So all all that together, it was not exactly a a quiet, silent night. All was really not very calm there that night. And even imagine like Joseph had walked many miles. I mean, this is not exactly, I think sometimes our mangers and our nativity scenes kind of almost romanticize it. This wasn't a calm, quiet Night, but in other ways, it was a silent night. How how was it a silent night? Do you think of any ways it was it was a silent night? Did most people okay? The star appears. There's no sound with that. Just a new sign in the sky. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So after all the noise of the angels singing, and then it just on that field, angels leave, and it's just silence returns. Absolutely. The other thing I would throw into the, the mix of this, it was silent in the sense that apart from the shepherds, there wasn't a big announcement of this. There was no fanfare. There wasn't like, you know, coming in and like I mentioned Sunday morning on joy. And then we even talked about it with the Come Coming Manual last week. This idea of rejoicing, this idea of a herald coming into the town in time of war. Good news. Rejoice. Rejoice. No one ran into Bethlehem being like, listen, the king is here. It was just quiet. 99.9999999% of the world absolutely no clue that the Savior had been born, that Emmanuel, that God was with us. And so just to refresh ourselves as you think about that, you're welcome to follow along, you're welcome to listen, but Luke chapter 1, the Christmas story that we sing about in Silent Night, Luke chapter 1. Because you're going to see some of this as we kind of start working back through what these stanzas mean. So thanks for talking about those things. So, stanza one of Silent Night. All is calm, all is right. We just kind of talked about what was really calm and what was not calm. On that, all being bright. That's that's an interesting imagery that, that's here as well of it all being bright. 
on that. Um, really, in that, we're really thinking about, does he have a halo on? No. I mean, you look at some of the Tiffany sets, right, and there's the Christ child, and he's like almost like glowing looking with a big halo on his head. That's not what we're talking about with it being a bright night. Rather, we're talking about that the hope has come. So in a figurative way, yes, Silent Night stands as correct that it was a bright night with hope coming, but not literally, apart from the star, it wasn't like a bright light shining on the nativity like sometimes the cartoons would show. But look in Luke chapter 1, and let's go back to verse 26. Just a quick refresher of the Christmas story as we think about this, about Silent Night. Luke 1, 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favor, when the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? Verse 35. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. That it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So we get a glimpse of that already in this first stanza, Silent Night, Holy Night. We get that in that third stanza, Round Yon Virgin. Doesn't mean that Mary was round. Lose a little vowel there. Around her, all is calm, all is bright. So it's talking about the peace of that whole situation of what is happening there. Also go over, though, to Luke chapter 2. And let's think more about this, this first night when it really wasn't all quiet. Luke 2, verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. For there was no place for them in the end. Well, friends, like we mentioned already, this was not a quiet night in some ways. He was put in a manger. You know, we had the, the real pretty one out in the hall out there. And actually, the one that Jesus was put in was not quite that clean. If you think about a manger feeding trough, what do animals do when they're eating? What's just drool coming out of their mouth? You ever seen, like, food that's kind of started getting meshed together because of drool? That's where the king got placed when he was born. And so just to help us think through as we sing this song and we think about the Christmas story, uh, it, it wasn't as nice, cleaned up, pretty place like a lot of times we think about it. it could, there was noise of animals all around on that. Which leads to a speculation question for us. Do you think that Jesus cried at birth? Do you think Jesus cried at birth? Yeah, he, I would speculate so. We don't want to, obviously, we'll get into this with the Bible interpretation next, next semester. We don't really want to do a lot of just speculation on Scripture. But remember, Jesus is fully God and fully man. What's described for us here in Luke 2, she gave birth to her son and wrapped him up. Right? There's every indication this is a normal birth. There's no indication this was anything besides a normal birth. And no one looked at Jesus and was like, what's that? You know, he was a baby boy, like all baby boys. He is fully God and he is fully 
man on that. And that's an incredible reminder to us. Now, this last thing I want to mention from stanza one of Silent Night. Notice the last phrase we repeat over and over again. Sleep in heavenly peace. Sleep in heavenly peace. What in the world did Moore and Gruber have in mind when they wrote that? Well, we don't know, but here's my understanding of that. Jesus was a real baby, so my speculation is he cried. It's not a sin for babies to cry. Sometimes it feels like it was 3 o'clock in the morning, right? But it's not a sin for babies to cry. Jesus was sinless. It didn't mean he never cried or expressed human emotions. I assume he would do what you know, everyone else did. He may have fallen and skinned his knee when he was a boy. I mean, he lived a fairly normal life in that way. He was fully God and fully man. But he slept in heavenly peace. What this reminds me of is that there was no panic in the Trinity when Jesus came as a baby. There's no panic of, oh my goodness, you know, the Holy Spirit's not saying to God, but look, this, Jesus is in a manger. There's, there's cows spit next to him. Like, there's no panic in heaven over this. The birth of Christ is what God ordained before the foundation of the world. Before he even made the earth, this was his plan. And sometimes we get into the fun theology discussion, this of what order of decrees did God use in things. But if we believe that God would desire to reveal himself to humanity and all of who he was, then he planned for this before he planned for even the world. So there's no panic in heaven that night. Jesus, the son, is not panicked. Oh, my goodness, I'm lying in a manger. There's no panic in God the Father. Oh, my goodness, how did this happen to my son? There's no panic in God the Holy Spirit. Everything's in heavenly peace. There's still complete peace among the, the triune God there, among the three, the three persons of the Trinity. All is at peace exactly as God had planned for it to happen. So that's the first stanza. So stanza number two, look at it. And this is where you're going to see, is, because again, it got translated, so different translations have different ways of doing it. And so I think the way we sung it's a little bit different than this rendition. Different hymnals have it in different ways. But stanza two, silent night, holy night, shepherds quake at the sight. Glory stream from heaven afar, heavenly hosts sing Alleluia. Christ the Savior is born. Christ the Savior is born. Well, this comes from Luke chapter 2 also. So Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8, and let's see where this comes from, what we're singing. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let me just stop there. So that's not a very quiet night, like Dave pointed out. It's pretty loud at this point. Then like Aaron mentioned to us, it does get really quiet in just a few minutes here. Verse 15, when the angels went away, and we can insert here, and the silence returned, right? So verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that they had been told, that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. So back into your groups now for a minute. And you have got three questions to think about in this stanza. Question one, why were the shepherds afraid? This is a pretty cool thing. Angel appeared. Hey, good news. Why were they afraid? Next question, why did God 
and there's a little bit of speculation here, but we'll look at some scripture after we talk about this. But why did God choose to first announce Christ's birth to shepherds? I mean, if you were God, would you have picked some dirty shepherds on the side of a field to bring the news to the world? And wouldn't we in our human tendency want to announce it to the presidents and the kings and the rulers and the CEOs and the people of influence? And he went to the dirty shepherds out on the side of the hill who've been, who probably smelled like sheep and sheep poop. Why is that who God announced it to? And then with that kind of similar, let's almost go together. Next question. What is significant about the shepherds being chosen to be the ones to first hear the good news? What's significant that God chose the shepherds first? So take just a few minutes in your small groups. Let's talk about those and then we'll get back to looking at it. First Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12 here. So concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be your search and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when, the, when he projected the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Verse 12, it was revealed to them they were not serving, not them, that they were serving not themselves, but you, the things that they have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Catch this phrase, things into which angels long to look. So as you come to the, the, stand, the end of stanza two, and we see against glory stream from heaven afar, heavenly hosts sing, Alleluia, Christ the Savior is born. The angels are rejoicing, and the angels are marveling. God, you're choosing to redeem these people who've rejected you. You're choosing to make way, and you're going to come yourself and be born and put in a trough the animals have, like, spit in, basically. He's, and they're marveling at this, at this redemption that is available to us. And a side note, maybe we can do a whole message today on the theology of angels. Angels don't draw attention to themselves. In this, the angels aren't singing, look at us, look at us. The whole message of angels is glory to God in the highest. It's all about praising him. Angels draw attention to Christ, not to themselves. So that's stanza two. So stanza three now. Look back at the other side of your sheet and look at stanza three. And let's look at the words in stanza three. Silent night, holy night. Son of God loves pure light. Radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace. Jesus, Lord at thy birth. Jesus, Lord at thy birth. So there's two images here that I want you to kind of focus in on first. Notice what Jesus is called in stanza three. He's called, the, obviously, the Son of God, which we're familiar with that term. He's also called loves pure light. Loves pure light. Two places in Scripture we see this. We're not going to go back to it because we've talked about it two different times already. But if you go back to Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah 9 is one of the places we get this idea of Christ being the light. It says in Isaiah 9, 2, that if people who walked in darkness, they've seen a great light. That's Christ. 
He is the great light in the darkness. But the other place that we see this as well is in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is one other example of Christ being the light. Because you know, we, we think of a lot of names of the Lord, and I don't think light is one we typically go to a whole lot, but it's one that the authors of Silent Night put in here. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. You get to see that Christ is the light. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. For what we, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Verse 7, but we have this treasure, this light in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It belongs to God and not to us, that he himself, the pure light, has shown into us. And like I mentioned a few weeks back, Jesus is the giver and the gift. What we need is him, and he's the one who gives it to us. He is the, both the gift and he's the giver, one and the same, Emmanuel, God with us, the pure light who is here. But this is humbling to realize that he is here to be our Savior, because it shows how desperate we are. You can look at verse 7. We have this treasure and jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Because that's part of the, the beauty of the Christmas story, is it really has very little to do with us. It's all about God, His power, His choosing people, His work. It, all it does for us is show us how weak and needy and desperate and hopeless we are. And so the Christmas story is not one to make us feel good about ourselves. It's one to let us marvel as well and remember that He is the light that we need. And the second imagery of light that we have in the stanza, stanza three, is... With the dawn, there's a light, the sun coming up, the dawn of redeeming grace. Dawn is the beginning of a new day. If you ever like to get up and watch the sunrise and the beauty of the sun coming up of the new day, I think that's what really what Christ's birth is. It was the beginning of redeeming grace. The Bible says that Christ came to seek and to save the lost. Is he still doing that today? Yeah, this was the beginning. This is the babe in the manger who's going to live a perfect life to fulfill the law who's going to be crucified, who's going to die, who's going to come back to life on the third day, defeat death, and offer redemption to us. He's, be, he's begun that right there in, in coming in as Emmanuel, God with us, and he still is drawing today. And so Christmas is not an accident. It was a time and place God appointed and God chose to begin the process of redeeming humanity to himself. And just again, the, the imagery of that last thing that's repeated, he's the Lord at thy birth, Lord, at thy birth. Again, there's God and man. God, who's always existed, his birth. You can wrestle with that when you're trying to go to sleep tonight, right? Lord, at thy birth. So here's, here's what I'd like you to talk about. The next question on the sheet in your small groups for just a few minutes here is question number seven from Stanza 3. In what ways is our own salvation experience like light filling our lives? How is our salvation experience like light filling our lives? Because if Christ is the pure light... He's the light that shines into the darkness. The imagery we've seen of him being the light is the treasure that we have. How is your own salvation experience like light filling your life? So take just a minute or two around your groups and talk about that one. Okay, so what have y'all come up with of how is our salvation experience like light filling our lives? How does what we've just sung in Silent Night be true even our own experience. 
Son of God, love's pure light, radiant beams from thy holy face, with the dawn of redeeming grace. How is our salvation experience like light filling our lives? Anyone want to tell us what you came up with? And this is one of the tougher questions for the night. It's a deeper thinking question. Anyone have one to volunteer your answers? We receive him. We're receiving the light of men. John one. Good. Anyone else want to? Guarantee of grace. That's a good phrase on that. Yeah, it's the dawn redeeming grace that God is making way. Listen to this from um, Galatians here, chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the fullness of time had come. Like I mentioned earlier, this is not plan B. Christ coming and being born in the manger. This is not plan B. This is not God in heaven panicking. This is not like some alternate thing. Well, I guess we'll try to fix the world somehow. When the fullness of time, that God had this plan in place before the foundation of the world, when the time was right, this time he had appointed, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem us who were born under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. So it's just a beautiful image of what Christ has done for us. So our final stanza of Joseph Moore's classic character, Silent Night, stanza four. Silent night, holy night, wondrous star, lend thy light. With the angels let us sing Alleluia to our King. Christ the Savior is born. Christ the Savior is born. So you have two images mixed here. The second line, wondrous star, lend thy light. This is for the, the imagery of the wise men and the star. And then, of course, the angels singing. That takes us back to the shepherds because we don't have a record of angels singing with the wise men. But Matthew chapter 2 is the record of where we get the, where we get the star from. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1, is where we pick up with the wise men. So Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it was written by the prophets, verse 6, And you of Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Verse 7, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. 
Send them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that you may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So this is where we get this imagery here. Wondrous star, lend thy light. The wise men saw it rise. And so from that we conclude they were looking for this. If you actually go back to Numbers 24, there was a prophecy that a star would come from Jacob. And so we can only assume that somehow from the Jewish people in Babylon, they had heard about the, the coming of the, the Messiah and there'd be a star accompanying it. And so they were watching, they were waiting as best they knew and they saw it and so they traveled and followed it. So the, here's the easy question tonight. You ready? Who put the star there for them to find? Easy question. Who put the star there for them to find? God. So to announce to the shepherds, God sends the angels and the glory of the Lord. To the wise men, he just puts the star because they were looking. They were waiting. And so God used that to direct them to the Christ child. And so the bottom line in that is God was drawing them in both of those situations. For the shepherds, God drew them with the angels and the glory of the Lord. For the wise men, it was a little bit quieter. Just a star in the sky, but they rejoice when they find the Christ child. And it's such a reminder to me when I think about singing Silent Night, and I think about the shepherds, and I think about the wise men that we see in these stanzas, to realize that God was drawing them and God is drawing us. That Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. Whether they were wise men, whether they were shepherds, or whether it's you and me. Mark 10, 45 tells us that Jesus came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so God is still in the business of drawing people. This is the dawn of redeeming grace. God is still drawing. But I have not met someone who personally has had angels appear to them. Though if you go to the Middle East, there's people who are followers of Christ now because an angel appears to them in a dream. God still can do that. God can do whatever God wants to do. God is God. But typically, at least in our context now, we don't see God giving a lot of dreams or drawing people, but God can if he wants to. I don't know of anyone coming to faith in Christ today because a new star is appearing in the sky. So, but God is still drawing. And so where I want us to kind of end our discussion is with tonight is this question right here, question eight. How does God move today to point people to Christ and to draw them to himself? So how does God do it today? How about for you? What did God use to draw you to the Lord? How do you see God working in the lives of people you're praying for? And so question nine is just one for you just to think about more for application this week. Whom can you be praying that God will be drawing this Christmas season? The Christmas story is God drawing the shepherds and God drawing the wise men. There's the dawn of redeeming grace. God is still doing that. Who can we be praying for this Christmas season? they got to be drawing, just like he's done to you and me and did to the shepherds and did to the wise men. So take just a few minutes. Our time is almost to take about just two or three minutes in your group here and talk about how does God move today to point people to Christ, okay? I know that's not enough time for that question, but I hope it at least gets you thinking on that. And so as you think about that, of God is still drawing people to Christ. So this was the dawn of redeeming grace. God is still doing this. Christmas story is not over. Christ is still drawing people. And so my prayer is that when you sing Silent Night, as we're about to close and sing it again, um, as we sing it, as we think about it, you hear it on the radio, I pray it will remind you of something. I pray that it will remind you 
of how God drew you, that maybe was different for him than the star or the, shepherd or the angels, and may it make you thankful for your salvation. That Christ the Savior, our Savior, my Savior, has been born. But with that, I pray it will also put on your heart someone who needs Christ. And perhaps every time we hear Sinai, this season, if every, if every one of us in the room, if every time we hear Sinai, we pray for a lost friend or family member, what might God do through that? And so let Sinai night be a, not only a time of thankfulness for you, but also a time of just really praying for those that God will be drawing them like he did there. So one last quote for you as you think about Silent Night. So I was studying on it this week and reading it. I came across it's just a great description. This guy wrote, And then I hear the faint whisper of Bethlehem. While the world was sleeping, God slipped his son in the back door of a barn. Most of the world did not even know he had come. Angels from heaven announced his arrival, but they did not appear before the emperor. Their message was not heard amidst the colonnades of Rome. Instead, God sent them to a few shepherds tending their sheep somewhere on the back 40 of Palestine. On this silent and lonely night, the shepherds stood in awe, captured by the sight of an angelic appearance. Those whom most people disregarded were now entrusted with a simple yet profound message that would echo through all the generations. And friends, we have that echo coming through the generations still today. So let's close on Silent Night. And, um, yeah, if we could sing them off our song sheets, some of the, you know, I think one, one stands a little bit different as they get translated different ways. Let's sing this together thinking about Christ has come.